Welcome to this special episode of Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Words Matter will be relaunching in January with episodes posted on Mondays. In the meantime, we will be bringing you new episodes as the news warrants. Enjoy the show. Our guests today are both recovering lawyers, podcast hosts, and explainers extraordinaire. Sarah Isger is a woman of many hats. In addition to hosting the Dispatch podcast and advisory opinions with David, She is a political analyst for ABC News, a former DOJ spokesperson, and has worked on three presidential campaigns and in all three branches of the federal government. And David French, who is a senior editor at The Dispatch, a center-right publication focused on reporting and analysis. He hosts alongside with Sarah, is an author, columnist for Time, and contributing writer at The Atlantic, including the author of his newsletter, The Third Rail. I have had the pleasure, I must say, of joining advisory opinions. And I can tell you, listeners, that Sarah and David have truly created something special over there because I said this to Sarah when I was on, but their audience is so smart, so engaging, so responsive. There's always a follow-up call or question for something, even for (laughs) a guest. And it's really something. So Sarah and David, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Words Matter. Well, thanks for having us. exciting. Yay, words matter. (laughs) Yay, words matter. All right. So the reason we are here, we are standing on the precipice of what seems like Roe v. Wade being overturned now that we have the benefit of hearing oral argument, although we can dive into that, into the discussion. But we wanted to talk to two legal scholars, people who have thoughts and opinions on all of this, who can explain as our friend Chris Hayes asks on his great podcast, why is this happening? So at the end of this, we kind of want our listeners to understand where we are, where we came from, and why this is happening. To set the table, I think it's important to remember from a legal point of view, even for those who are firmly committed to women's reproductive rights, um, have long viewed Roe, the legal decision itself, the opinion, as problematic. None other than the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out issues with this landmark decision. And as our listeners know, even as a journalist, I have never hidden my admiration and respect for Justice Ginsburg. But we're talking today about this legal point of view, the legal perspective, where we came from, why this is happening. So the ruling in Roe, then Judge Ginsburg noted in a lecture she gave at NYU in 1992, it basically tried to do too much too fast. It essentially made every abortion restriction in the country at the time illegal in one fell swoop, leaving it open to some pretty fierce attacks. She said doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped may prove unstable. So in this situation where, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, great cases like hard cases make bad law, we want to pick your brains about this. So, David, you have recently written about this point in particular and the institutionalist case for overturning Roe. So I want to start with you. Is the way Roe was written, why this is happening? Yeah, you know, I actually, when I talk about this, I go back to that Ginsburg 1992 NYU, I believe it was a Madison lecture that she gave because um, you read it and it's almost ridiculously prescient (laughs) as to why we are where we are because there were two components to it that had two key words in it. One component of her lecture, and she was quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes to essentially say that judges legislate 
But Holmes said judges should do it in essentially bits and pieces, incremental here, incremental there. And she was essentially endorsing that Oliver Wendell Holmes view that judges do, in fact, legislate. In other words, they make law, but endorsing that that A, does happen, B, should happen, and C, should happen incrementally. And she contrasted that with Roe, which she said was breathtaking in scope, that the Texas law that was struck down was one of the most restrictive in the country at that time, permitting abortion only when it was a necessary procedure to save the life of the mother. And she said, how different would our America be or how different would our controversy around this issue be if the court had simply struck down that law without striking down all abortion laws? And so when I, I've been writing about this, I say, wait a minute, this point of view that the courts legislate is a deeply contentious point of view as a matter of judicial philosophy. It is contrary to a lot of the way in which more conservative leaning jurists would articulate their philosophy. They would say, no, no, no. The legislature legislates. We're interpreting the law. We're not creating the law. And then the other thing is that the breathtaking aspect of this was destabilizing all by itself. And so that if you move the court to say, we're not going to legislate on this issue, we're going to leave legislation on abortion to the legislative branches of government, and we're going to roll back what Ruth Bader Ginsburg called a breathtaking decision, the end result of that, and no one's saying that overturning Roe wouldn't be very, very, very contentious in the moment, but over time, the end result of that is you're going to get to a democratic solution, a sort of a democratic consensus, more or less, around this issue that we've lacked for you know, almost five decades now. So that's a short version of how a lot of conservatives look at, that was my dog just jumped in the frame, how a lot of conservatives read the Ruth Bader Ginsburg analysis and agree in part that it was breathtaking and disagree in part that judges should have that legislative function. I also think it's worth noting something else that David has brought up before, which is the court at the point that Roe v. Wade is decided doesn't think that it's doing something particularly breathtaking because it's had a decade plus of sort of breathtaking decisions that we now take for granted. The Warren court ends in 69 with Warren's retirement. So just a few years, a couple years before Roe v. Wade comes to the court. And during the Warren court, you have Miranda, you have Gideon, the right to counsel, but you also have Griswold, the right to birth control, and Ingleby Vitale banning school prayer. So you have these cases finding new rights through the 60s, the late 60s in particular. And the country's like, huh. Okay, I'm not saying there weren't people who disagreed with those decisions. There obviously were, but there wasn't really a cultural backlash to them. And all of those in a way, but particularly Griswold, obviously, set the stage for Roe in a way that I don't think the court thought it was doing something breathtaking, like Mm -hmm. what Justice Ginsburg described. And that adds to its breathtakingness. They didn't spend a lot of time agonizing over this. And you can tell because even when the Supreme Court upholds the Roe decision in Casey 20 years later, they basically overturn every single thing about Roe v. Wade except the right to an abortion. They get rid of all of the reasoning. They basically sweep it all out and build a new foundation for Roe the way that maybe a Roe court would have done had it known that it was doing something, quote unquote, breathtaking. 
the test in Casey, the viability line plays into why this is happening. I want to get to that in a moment, but Sarah, I want to talk to you also about why this is happening procedurally, because you have spoken in the past about this court being this now 6-3 conservative majority court being more of a 3-3-3 court. We've seen the three liberal justices and then a split among the conservatives or between three on one side and three on the other. And of course, one reason why this is happening is because there was a fourth vote to take up this case. There have to be four Supreme Court justices to agree to hear a case not enough to win the majority. You need five for that. But to hear the case, you need four. I think I suspect who that fourth vote is now having the benefit of oral argument. I think we have then at least a four to one situation <laughs> in this case. But are you seeing that three through three split coming out of oral argument or is the divide within the conservative wing on the court also why this is happening? OK, such a good question. Let me back up a little. So let me explain my 333 paradigm because it's really based on two axes. You have the conservative to liberal axis, the one we've been using, you know, for the last 20, 30 years to describe where people fall along the Supreme Court. And that has worked up until now. The problem is that it doesn't help you explain the chief a lot of the time because the chief is conservative. He he's been conservative his whole life. He worked in the Reagan administration. Ken Starr was one of his first bosses. And so how do you explain <laughs> how do you explain a problem like the chief? And I have used this y-axis on institutionalism. And institutionalism can mean different things even to different justices. But let me just run through a few things it could mean. One, thinking about the case in terms of how it affects the credibility of the court with the public and its ability to have its opinions heated, if you will, right? The famous Jackson line, they made their decision, let's see them enforce it, which led to the trail of tears. So you you want the public to believe that the Supreme Court has authority because in some ways that's all the authority the Supreme Court has. But another institutionalist perspective could be the ability of the lower courts to follow a Supreme Court's precedent. If you make an opinion that is so difficult to comprehend or to apply to future cases because you don't have a bright line test, and in fact it's you know, sort of the pornography of Supreme Court cases. I know it when I see it. Well, that's not a lot of guidance for lower courts. And so you could say as a Supreme Court justice, yeah, this is how the case maybe should turn out, but it's really important to provide that type of institutional support to lower courts so they can follow our decision. And so when you chart the justices on that axis, you end up with this divide between Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, who they... I mean, honey badgers don't care how this turns out. <laughs> and you just have to look at the McGirt case, the Gorsuch temple to non-institutionalism. He hands half of Eastern Oklahoma away from the federal government as a Native American reservation because Congress didn't do what they needed to do to create that treaty. He's like, I understand this will be difficult to deal with if you're in Oklahoma right now. But that's not my problem. That's Congress's problem. You deal with it, Congress. Okay, so you've got those three very textualist, very non institutionalist. And then you've got the Chief, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, who are concerned about other things. So they are high institutionalists in that sense. All right, so now this brings us to Dobbs. 
this has been a parlor game, right? Who's the fourth vote? You knew that you had the three, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, wanting to take Dobbs. And until the oral argument, I was engaged in all sorts of very, I will acknowledge now, non-Occam's razor fourth vote conspiracy (laughs) theories. That it was Breyer, right? And he wanted to force Kavanaugh's hand before he left the court. Post-oral argument. I had come up with this whole scenario in my head. Totally. Like with wine and enough cheese, you can get me like (laughs) anywhere. I think Breyer was the fourth. Okay. Yeah. That he wanted, he wanted the the issue. If you're gonna tee it up, like do it on my watch. No, it was crazy thinking. And the oral argument showed why. I think it's pretty clear that fourth vote was Justice Kavanaugh. I don't think that affects the institutionalism issue here because you can make some pretty big institutional arguments against Roe to begin with. And of course, and we'll get to this later, but just because we think we know where the votes are now, and I think we do based on oral argument, but it doesn't mean that's where the votes stay. Plenty of cases, votes have shifted between the conference that happens right after oral argument, where there's sort of a show of hands, and when the actual opinions come out, the most famous of which, of course, is Casey. Obamacare. Oh, well, oh. and Casey. Yeah. Casey. I mean, oh, literally, don't you worry. Cases. We're going there. We right. going to talk about the Kennedy switch in time, but we can also do Obamacare. I thought we had a hive mind, Sarah. I was looking forward to wow. saying the same case at the exact same time. <laughs> that would have been epic. So <laughs> so we have at least a four, two, three. But really, what's your read from oral argument? I think we have five, one, three. I think we have five votes to overturn Roe and Casey right now. The chief will vote to uphold the Mississippi law while keeping Casey and getting rid of the viability test. And he'll say, and this is why I think you don't count the votes until they're hatched. I think he could convince someone to join him in saying, unfortunately, it's just not necessary to reach the Roe and Casey question right now because we can uphold the Mississippi law without getting there. And according to the canons of avoidance, meaning you try to resolve the narrowest issue you can, the chief has a pretty good argument that you don't need to get to Roe to uphold the Mississippi law. And then, of course, you have the three votes to strike down the Mississippi law. Part of the institutionalism point we're going to get to, but I think part of that conversation is stare decisis, is what happens to the court when and if they reverse Roe, and is the series of cases and decisions born out of this understanding of privacy that underpin Roe. So I think it's unfair to have a conversation about Roe and about Dobbs without talking about cases like Griswold. So Griswold v. Connecticut is one of the core cases underpinning Roe. It's this 1965 case. You both know it well, but for our listeners, the statute in this case is from 1879. It's a Connecticut law that banned basically anything that furthered contraception for married couples. And so the question in that case before the Supreme Court was, does the Constitution protect marital privacy against state restrictions on a couple's choice or ability to be counseled in using contraceptions and contraceptives? So that opinion- It all sounds so quaint now. So quaint. (laughs) A married couple wants to use a contraceptive device. So that was a 7-2 opinion. 
And that was Justice William O. Douglas for the court saying that the Constitution does. It protects the right to marital privacy against state restrictions on contraception. And the court explained that the Constitution does not say the word privacy that way. It doesn't explicitly protect a general right to privacy. There are various guarantees throughout the Bill of Rights that create penumbras or zones that establish this right to privacy. And those rights include first, third, fourth, ninth. It's been a while since I took con law, but they create this right to privacy in marital relations that, of course, eventually got extended to single individuals in Eisenstadt. But this Connecticut statute conflicted with that exercise of this marital right to privacy. Therefore, it got axed. How does Griswold fit into the current issues before the court? And why is this little corner of row happening without dealing with the rest of that? Boy, that's a really good question. My own assessment, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear what Sarah says about this. I don't think the word Griswold will appear in this opinion if Roe is reversed. I don't think they're going to touch it. I don't think they'll really talk about it. I think they're going to zero in on Roe and only Roe. And then if somebody, some scholar somewhere says, well, this really also undermines Griswold. And then somebody tries to re-implement a contraception ban. <laughs> the Supreme Court's just not ever going to, I mean, they're just going to let the natural reality of American law and politics sort of hold Griswold in place through inertia rather than calling it into any kind of explicit question. And so I think that Griswold, I would be really surprised if in a majority opinion that might overturn Roe Casey, that would really grapple with Griswold at all. I think they just punt on that completely. Let me put it this way. If they're talking Griswold, the people who are unhappy, it's Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) Mississippi is unhappy that they're talking about Griswold. So I think that that probably will not be a factor in the decision, even though there would be certainly some logical legal reasons why perhaps it should be addressed. I just think it won't be. And, and to go back to something Sarah was talking about, Sarah's formulation of 333, which I think is a key insight in the court, can still be correct, even if fundamentally correct, even if the court overrules Roe and, and here's why. An institutionalist who's also an originalist, I would say, believes in the originalism of the nudge rather than the shove. So they're going to move jurisprudence in an originalist direction, but they're not necessarily going to go the whole way. And I think a perfect example of this is the Fulton case, where Barrett and Kavanaugh basically said, yeah, this employment division v. Smith stuff, we're not really down with it, but we just don't know what you replace it with. And I compared it in a piece to sort of the Dread Pirate Roberts admonition to Wesley every night. Good night, Employment Division V. Smith. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And may or may not come ever, but that's the originalism of the nudge. What would be the originalism of the nudge here? And that's where you have a problem. What's sort of an originalist move that takes you from Casey to something short of overruling Roe Casey? Most likely it's something else just kind of made up is the problem. And that that lack of a middle ground between overturning Roe, the essential holding of Roe and Casey, and upholding that lack of a coherent middle ground that matches the judicial philosophies 
of Kavanaugh and Barrett. That is what has increasingly made me believe that overturning Roe Casey, if not likely, is far more possible than I thought would happen when they first took the case. You know, a case is going to get mentioned a lot in any opinion. Like, let's assume David's right, the Griswold, you're not going to be able to find any of it. You're going to find plenty of Plessy. Oh, yeah. You find plenty of Plessy. I know that came up on advisory opinions this past round. Why is Plessy going to come up? And then, David, I'm going back to the the nudge shove situation because that was actually where I was going with you on that. Why Plessy? Okay. Okay, so Brown v. Board of Education, I don't think it's close in terms of an opinion that has more shaped both the country and the view of what the role of the Supreme Court is in the public's mind. I don't think, you know, maybe for law students, Marbury versus Madison is important, but not for Americans. It's Brown v. Board of Education. And that says that there is no such thing as separate but equal. And it ends state-sanctioned racial segregation. Well, the reason for Brown, of course, is that it overturns a case called Plessy v. Ferguson from roughly 50 years earlier, by the way, about the same amount of time as Roe is now. Plessy, uh, because one of the justices had recused himself, is actually a 7-1 opinion. One dissent by, of course, the great Justice John Marshall Harlan. Plessy sanctifies, constitutionally sanctifies segregation. And it says that separate but equal is okay because, you know, the 14th Amendment says that you can't have racial discrimination, but it's not discrimination as long as it's equal, right? Even though, of course, the laws in question, even at that time, were anything but creating anything equal. It's considered one of the great stains on the court, although for that one, it's a race. Obviously, Dred Scott is the number one stain on the court, but Plessy is probably number two. And so the question for the justices today is, is Roe Plessy? Is it a stain on the court? And what's interesting, of course, is that Plessy gives that ability to the states and Roe took it away. And so Brown takes something from the states, takes a right from the states, whereas Dobbs would be giving something back to the democratic process, right? Brown says there is no democratic process that ends in racial discrimination that is constitutionally acceptable. And then Dobbs would be saying, if they overturn Roe v. Wade, the constitution is silent on the question of abortion and therefore we have to leave it up to the democratic process. It's interesting that there's the comparisons to Plessy when in some ways this is the opposite. At the same time, the 14th Amendment is what both cases, all four cases really, are all about. And the 14th Amendment is one of those post-Civil War constitutional amendments that we know was clearly about racial segregation in the country. I think there are serious historical arguments that abortion was one of the rights at the time of the 14th Amendment in 1867, 1868, thereabouts. But that's a much harder thing to argue that clearly those who ratified the 14th Amendment meant to include abortion, whereas there's no argument over whether they meant to include banning racial discrimination. And so you get back to this weird position where the right in our system, the American right, wants something returned to the democratic process. 
And the American left wants something kept out of the democratic process, which is actually weirdly kind of the opposite traditionally of the American right and left. The right seen as counter-majoritarian and the left seen as yes, majoritarian. So that's kind of, again, you take the big lens, like the hundred year lens. That's a weird moment in our politics. The hundred year lens focusing on states' rights, of course, does have that reverse between Plessy and Roe and perhaps Dobbs. But from the individual liberty perspective, it is again reversed, Plessy reinforced, enshrined law that took away individual liberty. Brown reinstalled it, perhaps Roe reinforced individual liberty, and perhaps Dobbs may take that away, but states' rights versus individual liberty. That is the discussion. But regardless, you never want to be one of the seven justices that signs on to Plessy. And that truly, like, I can't overstate that, right? If you're a Supreme Court justice, every single day, you want to make sure you're not one of the seven justices that sign on to Plessy. It was so overwhelming in the majority who thought, of course, this is right. Of course, this is the right legal outcome. And one voice writes in dissent in that opinion. It's incredible to think about and should provide all of us a little humility, by the way. But if you're a Supreme Court justice, you have to think every day and make sure you're not signing on to the next Plessy. And I think that's a real problem in the Dobbs case. Humility in this discussion is key. It is incredibly difficult and complicated. And I even went to law school and still find it that way. So David, going back to you saying you think that this is likely to be a nudge. I read the piece that you were referring to. I think it was in the Atlantic where you say, after listening to the oral argument, if Roe is to survive, that's how it will survive. The Supreme Court will basically nudge, choose to nudge. But you said, don't be surprised if it's a shove. What do you mean by that? What I meant is, if you think through the concept, the difference between the nudge and shove, the question is nudge to what versus shove to what? Okay, what is the standard? And essentially when, for example, a nudge case is the Fulton case. So there, essentially what Kavanaugh and and Barrett do is say, we don't have to shove because a nudge gets us to the outcome that is consistent with sort of our overarching judicial philosophy and the shove, we're not ready to go there yet because we don't know what replaces. You want us to overturn employment division V Smith? Okay. What then? What then? When it comes to Roe, it's a different kind of dynamic. The overturning of Roe Casey, what then? The answer is very fast, rational basis review. That's the answer. But then the question of what's the nudge outcome becomes much more difficult. So what is it? Is it, okay, now pre-viability limitations even outright bans are going to be permitted pre-viability so long as they don't impact what percentage of abortions. You begin to see where the nudge position almost requires the concoction of another standard and the concoction of another standard is the very problem that the originalist objects to in the first place. So conceptually, they have to land somewhere. And if you have an originalist point of view, a landing somewhere between Roe Casey and reversal is by and large going to be a made up standard, which runs straight into their their underlying originalism. And so 
that's why I think the shove, especially after listening to oral arguments, becomes more and more and more likely because the nudge, it's hard to find the coherent originalism inherent in the nudge, if that makes sense. What is the standard that they would articulate that would be a nudge that's still consistent with originalism? And that's where if Roe and Casey are going to be overturned, it's going to be because these more institutionalist justices say, look at it and say, well, at the end of the day, if I'm not overturning Roe Casey, I'm still I'm making something up. And my job is not to make something up. Okay, we are quickly running out of time and I want to make sure our listeners get the story that Sarah referred to and the double case names that you both shouted out at the same time, because somehow, (laughs) strangely, the case has been submitted, as the chief said, and the justices are considering it. It's been argued. It's been briefed. No calls for supplemental briefs at this point that we're aware of. But somehow our collective and I don't include me in that, but some people Their words still matter potentially as the justices grapple with how to land, whether it's the nudge or the shove and where the line is. So, Sarah, what's happening right now behind the scenes and why does that matter? So the case was argued on Wednesday and then the conference for the justices was on Friday. What that means is they, without anyone else, just the nine of them sit in a conference room, they look at cases whether to take other cases. There's, you know, thousands of cases that people ask the Supreme Court to take. They will also talk about all of the cases that were argued before the court that week. And what they do is it starts with the chief. He introduces the discussion and then they go around the room. He has said that he makes sure everyone has the chance to speak once before anyone can speak twice. And they're basically doing a head count of kinds. And then the most senior justice in the majority assigns the majority opinion. Now, case of this magnitude, no doubt the most senior justice will write the opinion, will assign that majority opinion to himself. But that's not the end, because what will happen is that opinion then gets circulated to the chambers over the following couple months, let's say. You still have to get four other justices to join your opinion, regardless of what their vote in the headcount was. And people change their minds or they read what it looks like when it's actually on paper and decide that it leaned too far to one direction or it wasn't persuasive or maybe one of the concurrences that was circulated actually gets five votes and the quote unquote majority opinion only ever gets two or three. What I think has become more famous is, again, in the Casey example and in the Obamacare example, there is one justice who changes their vote. And that was Justice Kennedy in the Casey example. Roe would have been overturned. Kennedy changes his vote. It's a jointly authored opinion, fascinatingly, uh, which is somewhat unusual at the court, though not unheard of. And in Obamacare, of course, the chief justice does not believe that the individual mandate can be supported by the Commerce Clause, but finds himself the taxing power of the United (laughs) States Congress and upholds the individual mandate as a taxing power. That's all to say those opinions are going to go back and forth to chambers as they respond to one another in their opinions, in footnotes. They truly do craft these opinions. And it's why we will not see an opinion in Dobbs until June when the court basically it's like a gas, right? It will expand to fill the time it's allotted when the court (laughs) finally goes on recess. We'll see exactly what day it is. But the end of June That's when Dobbs will come out because they will simply be out of time. But until then, 
they're going to keep tinkering. Well, and one thing I'll add on to that, which is another reason why until June, you're going to see an awful lot of op-eds. You might see law review articles, you'll see speeches, you'll see all kinds of commentary that really has an audience of one or two. And it's the one or two justices that people think are still maybe persuadable one way or the other. And part of the legend of the Casey decision is that it was Justice Kennedy who was in in our our podcast, I, I pulled up a 1992 Washington Post article. This is how quickly sort of the news leaked out that Kennedy had switched. And the claim in 1992 was that Kennedy switched and he switched because Larry Tribe got to him. Larry Tribe got to him. That was the story in 1992. Now, I don't know if that's how, you know, if that's still the consensus today, but the consensus today is that Kennedy did switch. And so a lot of people are vying to be the Larry Tribe of 2022, 2021, 2022, the person who got to one of the justices. And so we're going to see a lot of efforts in that direction between now and June. Also worth noting, because David, you and I actually forgot to mention this on our podcast, but I got this question in our mailbag. So I'm going to give it to the words matter listeners. If a justice leaves the court before the opinion comes out, and I mean, you know, a justice gets hit by a bus at 7 a.m. that morning, it doesn't matter how close it was, how solidified their vote was that vote no longer counts to the outcome of the case. So on top of vote switching, there's death, there's retirements, there's everything else that can happen. June is a long way off. That's a great mailbag question. Was that the one prefaced with may it please the pod? (laughs) And it was a little bit awkward too, because they were like, I'm going to pick my favorite justice just so this doesn't seem too dark. I'm like, you know what? It's a dark topic regardless, but it's one that people care about because which vote matters, right? Is it the vote at conference? Is it when they, you know, agree to join an opinion? Nope. It is when the opinion is actually handed down, as the Ninth Circuit learned when they tried to use a uh, Reinhardt opinion 14 days after he had passed away. The Supreme Court overturned, saying judges are appointed for life, not eternity. And there goes the subtitle for the podcast, Votes Matter. Thank you both for joining us and helping explain where we are, where we came from, and I'm pretty sure where we're going. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Words Matter. Words Matter is a DSR Network production and is produced by Grant Haver. Chris Cottonor is the executive producer. If you enjoy the show, please rate it and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. According to industry data, the average podcast listener listens to half of each podcast episode they start. But Deep State Radio listeners, on average, listen from start to finish, and they do it several times a week. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm the host of Deep State Radio, the podcast where policy experts, journalists, and thought leaders take you through a tour of the inner workings of American power and the impact our leaders and their policies are having on our standing in the world. We provide you with the serious analysis you need to understand our current moment without taking ourselves too seriously. No punches are pulled, and we focus on what's next, solutions, 
and the parts of each story that are not getting covered elsewhere. Listening to Deep State Radio is the best way to become an insider without actually having to go to a lot of stuffy Washington dinner parties. So join us every week for coverage of the most important issues in national security, foreign policy, politics, the law, and the other issues affecting all of our lives.